Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Buino. I'm a psychotherapist, teacher, consultant, and most importantly, a wounded healer, living and working in Chicago, Illinois. On this show, I interview folks in a variety of healing professions, and we discuss the intersectional journey of healing self while caring for others. We're not just focused on individual healing, but also healing on the collective level from white supremacy, late-stage capitalism, and the patriarchy. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Oh, collective deep breath. I really, really, really long for the day that I'm not going to have to be worrying about talking about something terrible that is happening in the world when I address the podcast. This is my first time back behind the mic since the Buffalo shooting by the white supremacist. And I'm, I mean, like, there's nothing I can say, right? You know, I, it's funny, I've been kind of judging myself for not having posted about it on social media. And then I just thought, like, I can't right now. I just, I can't. And I've been watching people that I love who are black really be impacted just by yet another example of hatred and I watch their pain and there's nothing that I can do other than love them and listen to them and believe them and all of the activation that they're experiencing. And I'm fucking tired of it, right? I'm tired of not being able to do something to stop this. And I do believe when I can get centered back in my heart, I do believe that this podcast puts good out into the world. I believe that every single one of you that comes to this podcast, that we are all committed to the fight. We're all committed to trying to create a more just world where people don't get killed just because of the color of their skin or, you know, insert whatever quote unquote difference, right? I actually think there's probably more people that would identify as different than people who would identify as quote unquote normal, right? Normal's boring anyway, right? Boring and annoying. Who wants to be normal? I mean, I guess a lot of people do, but at any rate, I I just wanted to acknowledge that, that horrific event here and just share with you that I am holding it in my heart. So As we move on here, one of the things I I wanted to share, last invitation to join me in my Wounded Healer virtual group that's going to be starting on June 7th. So if you're listening to this when it drops on June 1st, this is last call for any mental health professionals who want a place where they can go connect with other people who are on the same journey and potentially dealing with burnout Whatever it is that you want to bring to the table, we create a really juicy, lovely, supportive, connective healing space for other mental health professionals. So if you want to check that out, you can go to tinyurl.com slash woundedhealersv as in virtual, g as in group, dash the number two. That's tinyurl.com slash woundedhealersvg dash two. All right, now on to today's guest because she's amazing and wonderful and I feel really, really privileged to have been able to 
learn from her and have a conversation with her. So without further ado, today's guest is Carrie Kelly. And Carrie is the founder of Citizen Well, a movement that is democratizing well-being for all. A descendant of generations of firemen and first responders, Carrie has dedicated her life to kicking down doors and fighting for justice. She's been teaching yoga for over 20 years and is known for making waves in the wellness industry by challenging norms, disrupting systems, and mobilizing people to act. You can see why I like her, right? (laughs) A community organizer, wellness activist, and author of the forthcoming book, American Detox, The Myth of Wellness and How We Can Truly Heal, Carrie is recognized across communities for her inspired work to bridge transformational practice with social justice. She's been instrumental in translating the practices of well-being into social and political action, working in collaboration with community organizers, spiritual leaders, and policymakers to transform our systems from the inside out. Her leadership has inspired a movement that is actively organizing around issues of racial and economic justice, healthcare as a human right, civic engagement, and more. Carrie is a powerful facilitator, TED speaker, and is the host of the prominent podcast, Citizen, spelled C-T-Z-N. You can learn more about her work at carriekelly.co and citizenwell.org. So please enjoy this wonderful, heart-centered, juicy, I can't even say enough superlatives for it, conversation with Carrie Kelly. Hello, Carrie Kelly. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. Hello, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. I am really excited. We've already been talking, <laughs> already getting into the stuff before we yeah. started recording. Yeah, we have. So, yeah, I'm I'm really excited. This is going to be juicy, this. y'all. Yes, it is. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, get out your napkins because you're going to be wiping your chin. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Get comfortable. Mm-hmm. Get what you need. Right. You know, buckle up. Yeah. So I found you. I'm so excited. I've been taking the Embodied Social Justice course with Rev Angel Kyoto Williams, and it's been a wonderful experience. And you are sort of the host of like the white body connection. And I went to the first intro with you and I was like, I love everything about you. You Mm. attend to nuance in such a beautiful way everything. And so I immediately Mm. like reached out to you and saw you have this book. And I'm like, oh my God, yes, all of this. (laughs) I want to talk to you. So that's why you're here. You're welcome. I'm I'm glad we found each other. Yeah. Well, tell us, you are more than just this person who facilitates this white bodied (laughs) space. So tell us more about you. Oh gosh. Well, I'm glad you started with that because that's become a big focus of my work because I I live and breathe in a white body and that has enormous implications and impacts. And so, so much of my work over the last, you know, 10 to 15 years has been grappling with that and understanding that for myself, which is a lot of that is in this book, American Detox. It's like my own very messy, you saw, you've read it. So like, you're like, it's very, very messy (laughs) modeling of like what it is to be like, oh, fuck, I'm white. And I would say honest and vulnerable, not messy. Thank you. Thank you. I own the mess of it and the mistake. I'm trying to learn how to like be cool with them and know that I can survive them so I can keep going. Right. So yeah, that's who I am in the world, especially in the context of America and wellness. And I'm also coming to know myself as more than that. And I feel like that's really important for white people to discover too, that we're more than what whiteness has told us we are. And I'm more than American. You know, I'm Irish and I'm Italian and I'm Jewish and I'm German and So I'm in a process right now of like what Reverend Angel calls going back to get myself, 
(laughs) So that I can understand who and what I come from, the culture I come from, the medicine I come from, so that I can build an orientation to home that is outside of the membership and the lie, quite frankly, of white supremacy. So I'm all of those things. I'm also, I'm a New Yorker you know, which is um, (laughs) Lenape land. You and I talked about that already. Mm -hmm. I always have to say that. I'm the daughter of nurses and firemen. I have many, many generation of firemen in my family. They were Mm. called water carriers, actually. Hmm. In the 1300s, it's on our family crest. Wow. And I'm a cis-straight, mostly able-bodied, although I broke my back seven years ago and learned a lot about disability Mm -hmm. that I wasn't able to understand until that moment. And socialized in America, you know, and socialized towards achieving and overachieving and performing and being productive and striving for perfection and climbing the ladder pretty relentlessly, which is what I did for the first 25 years of my life. Mm -hmm. I am also the person who's been for the last, I don't know, 20 years trying to unlearn, unpack and unravel that Mm -hmm. shaping. Yeah. Thank you for that beautiful that beautiful way you put all that out. It's so succinct. I'm very impressed by that. I'm always just like rambling everywhere. Many years. (laughs) The book was really helpful. I have to tell you, Mm -hmm. I think people think you sit down and you write a book and that's not how it went for me. I Mm -hmm. a lot of like rolling around on my mat and it was a lot of sitting with what is the truth of who I am. And I had to do a lot of research and a lot of reckoning. And I just say that as these words don't come easily to me and I was not born with them. I had to find them, right? Yeah. And I had to distill them and I had to, I had to really learn how to, um, how to understand myself and then do my best to articulate it in the, and embody it, of course, you right, know, which is right. a big pa- part of my practice. Yeah. Well, if I ask the question how you come to this work, we can also tell listeners and potential readers that y- you share this story in the book as yeah. well. Can you tell us what was the wake-up moment for you? Yeah, so my wake-up call came on... Um, it's funny because I think there were wake-up calls before that, but the the way that I've come to know my stubborn self is that the universe <laughs> had to, has to slap me upside the head to be like, yeah, hello, can you see you know right. what's really happening? And so for me, it was 9-11. It was an enormous unimaginable event. And that impacted so many people, right? So I'm not alone in that. It's a real shared, I think, wake up call for many. Yeah. And um, my stepdad was a fireman. He was uh, a lieutenant at Ladder 15, which was located in the South Street Seaport. And they were the second house to respond Mm. to, well, actually they responded after the first plane hit Tower One. Mm. And as they were driving, because they were a couple blocks away, um, they saw the second plane hit and they rerouted themselves to respond to the second tower. And from what I understand, one of the, the great miracles of our story is that so many people don't know what happened in those yeah. moments. And, and we actually were able to recover the radio tapes of wow. his, all of his interactions in the towers. And they're actually in the museum. So you can actually listen to him. I mean, it's just like, Oh my fucking God. ridiculous. And so, wow. um, and it was hard to hear. And it was also like the greatest blessing to understand, um, to hear his voice in those moments yeah. and to hear, oh, hold on a second. Yeah. A dog just ran out the door. Oh, God. <laughs> but- Fuck. C-spot run, literally. He just, the door's double locked and he opened the door and ran away. 
Um, I'm so sorry. <laughs> We're leaving this in, is, by the way. That's hilarious. That dog is so <laughs> smart. That's crazy. Okay, so now I've double locked it, and then I actually wrapped a rope around, God. and then I blocked it with a stool. So that's what's smart. happening over here. Oh my god. Okay. Uh, heart attack over. All right. Heart, yeah. I was. I just. You saw yes. me like jump into yes. action. So. So that's yes. sort of some of what I've inherited from my ancestors. I want to say is that I have a first responder mm-hmm. embodied spirit. I'm like quick to jump. I'm quick to jump into burning buildings. I'm yeah. quick to respond. Folks who are close to me know that I'm I'm very good in crisis. And as was, you know, my stepdad. And, mm-hmm. you know, so much of what I heard from him in those tapes is, um, you know, I could hear his fear and mm-hmm. and I could hear his commitment, you know, like he, he kept going. He ran up 78 flights of stairs, you know, when so many people were running out and and he actually, um, the last we heard from him, he was on the 78th floor. And um, um, I think that either the, blor- the door got busted, he got stuck in the stairwell, essentially. And, um, and he said, and he was talking to someone on the other side of the wall who was on the floor of impact. And he said, I'll be right to you. Mm. Like, I'm coming, I'm coming for you. Yeah. And, then, and then the tower fell and, and we lost him. And so that was, you know... As you can imagine, a massive, massive disruption of a very like clearly articulated like should path that I had paved out for myself. Yeah. yeah. You know, I was like, here's who I'm going to be in the world. And I'm climbing this ladder and we're going to have a house and a family and all the all the things on the checklist. And that moment obviously blew all of that up and everything that I had known to be, you know, normal and safe. Uh, came down with those towers. And so that right. was sort of the beginning of my unraveling, quite frankly. Um, and it was sort of when I started to really question everything. Almost immediately, I started yeah. to question everything, question the government, question what was happening, how it was handled, question my life, question my career. I had just gotten married. I mean, I questioned everything. Yeah. And I didn't get any answers, of course, but that began a long journey, you know, 21 years now of asking the questions, asking the hard questions, asking what did I learn? What's true? Right. And who am I? Right. And how did we get here? How did we get to a place where, you know, our city, my city gets attacked in this way and, and has to suffer this wound and this loss? And I, I, you know, in some of my digging, I talk a lot about how when we kind of reckon with like, how did this happen for many different, for, for the many different crises we're navigating, often we can we can look back at history right, to see where it began, where the story began. And in many ways, it began with imperialism right, and colonization, which is one of the, you know, the core wounds, the roots of this country. And so anyway, so, so that, that was sort of my wake up call. And it wasn't like, you know, I often have to tell people, I think people sometimes assume a wake up call is like literally a light bulb and you're like, ding, I know everything. And it was not that. Oh, <laughs> it was yeah. more like, I know nothing. <laughs> Right. What the fuck? Yeah. And like, and what is it? And how, like, what is it? How do I, you know, it was, I was just lost, quite frankly. I was mm-hmm. genuinely lost. And I was like, who am I now? What is the truth of anything? Yeah. And, and how do I move forward? Yeah. And something that I really related to in the book, when you talk about the aftermath of that and this unraveling, as you call it. And I think you said something like, I'm like watching everybody else move on and I'm not okay. And yet nothing can slow down for me. And that's something I relate to in my own recovery from 
all of life, really. And I think a lot of listeners can really relate to. And that I keep trying to figure out how to be better at explaining how I get from that to white supremacy. But it's like (laughs) now that I see white supremacy everywhere, anytime it's like rushed or push forward, like, you know, produce, right? Like all of that is white supremacy and not having space to grieve, not having rituals for grief, right? A lot of our cultural rituals have been stripped. So yeah. Anything you want to add there? Well, and in that, I love that you said that and what you're naming also makes me think about the pandemic and how, how intolerant so many of us were for good reason to like, not just the calamity and the uncertainty of what was happening, which I think drove a lot of people to like buying into some really fucked up conspiracies, right? We saw that happen, but also just like the desire to return to normal. Like, let's get back to work. Let's get back to normal. I want to go out and see my friends. Right. Right. Which I I just want to say, like, I wanted that too. (laughs) So I want to validate that, you know, wanting community and people and connection again and to go outside and to, you know, and and when I think about what we're being asked to reckon with, yeah, given like global pandemics and climate change, I think it's probably dangerous for people in power, for systems of power to allow people to have the space and time to really feel right. and reckon and ask questions about like, what the fuck? You know, right. how did we how did this happen? And did this many people need to die? And I think the same thing happened for me on 9-11. Yeah. Like people were just like, I remember like there was a literally a moment where I remember being on the streets of New York City because it was like also radical how different it was, like how still everything got. And the night of 9-11, I was with my mom on the Upper East Side and we were just like, we didn't know anything. We didn't know where Joe was. We didn't know. We had no information. And so then we drove, I think someone drove us or maybe my mom drove us home from the Upper East Side to Pelham, which is where I lived. and. It was a ghost town. I shit you not. There was not one. I mean, this is Manhattan. There wasn't one car on the road. It was like just our car. I mean, Mm. it was like the most dystopian shit ever. And so I remember that like being like, everything has changed. Like nothing will ever be the same. And then I also remember the first taxi horn I I heard. It was like, get out of the way, lady. You know, like in New York. And I was like, oh, we're there again. You know what I mean? And so, um, that was like, I had a lot of dissonance around that. I was like, right. I'm not ready to move on. I'm right. not ready to, you know, I'm not ready to close the the door on this chapter. I'm not, I also wasn't really ready to give up on his life. Right. You know, I wasn't ready to give up on finding his body. And so there were, there was a lot that I was like unwilling to do. And, and yet there were a lot of people who were wanting to move forward and not just wanting to move forward, wanting to retaliate, yeah. wanting to go get those fuckers. And I, and that's just not where I was. And I was, and and so I appreciate you saying that because it was like, I did feel really alone in yeah. that. And I felt really lost. And I didn't know what recovery looked like from that. I was like, what the fuck do I do now? Mm-hmm. Like, I just can't move forward as I was. That's exactly how I feel about the pandemic. That's exactly it, right? Like, I am a serial extrovert. And all of a sudden, I can't be with people in the same way anymore. I'm more attuned to the energies and what's going on internally. And I just can't move at the pace I used to move at. And I refuse to, right? And that's, I mean, this is what you're talking about, this detox, that that's the invitation that we want everybody to have 
And at the same time, I am really fucking uncomfortable. And yeah. being yeah. this tuned in is exhausting. And so yeah. I right. I understand completely why people are dissociated, why they're numbing out, why they're not picking up this fight. I really appreciate you saying that. And and I, by the way, resonate with the serial extrovert thing. <laughs> yeah. And then like the pandemic happening and being like, I love being alone. So I loved, I love that no one can find me. Like it was like, I couldn't even, it was like so weird. I'm 46 years old. And it was like, it took me that. And then it start, made me wonder. And I also like, I'm having a hard time being an extrovert again. Yes. And I went through some real mental health stuff after that, where I was like, I don't know how to be in the yes. world again. <laughs> yes. And um. But one of the things I've been questioning is like how much of my extroversion was natural and how much was conditioned. I'm wondering that too. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. and now that I'm like more in touch with myself, I'm like, I'm not entirely an extrovert. Like I like my time. I need my privacy. Yeah. I want to be quiet. I want to so anyway, so thank you so much for saying that. And and I think you're right in that, like, as someone who's constantly trying to nudge people to feel and to feeling uncomfortable. I think we also need to hold compassion for how fucking hard that is. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And something that came to mind earlier that relates now is it's so uncomfortable and the forces that we're reckoning with, it would be so easy if it's like, okay, we're against Mitch McConnell, right? And we are fighting this one bad guy, but it's it's an octopus. It's a seven <laughs> seven-headed hydra, right? Like when you cut one, another one sprouts in its place. And so I know that for me, Ooh, the lack... Great analogy, by the way. Uh, not mine. That's Robin Henderson Espinoza. I will give it back to them. Brilliant. But that's part of... I'm sure it's part of the design of what... It continues to keep us exhausted so that yeah. we don't keep fighting. And that's something where that part, I think, particularly is where I struggle to find hope because the question is like, is this ever going to end, right? Like, I love to just go to the... The final product, right? The final product has to be what I want. Otherwise, it's it's not worth yeah. it, which is, again, white supremacy. So here it is. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really love that. And I like love the like the octopus analogy. And, and on, in the book, I use the analogy of like water and air, right? Like the yeah. water is polluted, the air is polluted. And and I think you're right. You know, in some ways, when we understand that's how culture works. And I really think it's important for people to understand that's how culture works, right. because I think you're right. It's too easy to point the finger at one bad politician or one KKK white supremacist, right? right? And that's actually not what's happening, right. right? We're dealing with systemic issues and cultural issues and structural issues that require systemic cultural and structural responses. But when we make it about one bad person or one bad company or one bad thing, we don't treat it with the medicine that's required. So I, I just like love that you brought that up because that to me is some of the orientation and analysis that we need right now so that we can understand what the problem is and also like how we're being shaped by the problem right, right? and so like when i understand it as air and water i can't not get curious about what i have breathed in from that air right right and how what's happening on the outside is in fact happening on the inside yep. and what i'll just share with you cuz i know that so when we understand that culture works in that way and that we're all imprinted and shaped by that culture, whether we like it or not, because we're all situated inside of the water, the soup. Yep. I think it can feel overwhelming, right? And pervasive and constant and like never ending. And 
it's helped me also like locate myself in the way in which I'm not alone. Yeah. Right. Like I'm in the soup with you yep. <laughs> and, and everyone else. Right. Who can see the soup, in fact. Yeah. Right. Right. And those who can't. And also it's helped me. It's helped me work with shame in a different way, mm. especially when I make mistakes or when I'm really reckoning with all of the ways I'm implicated and continuing to participate in these systems. I remember that like, it's not because I'm a bad person, right? right? It's not because I'm the worst person. It's not, be, right? Right. it's not because something's wrong with me. It's because I've been conditioned, right? right. Um, and socialized to be this person. And so therefore my practice, and that's sort of what I explore in this book is, what does it look like for me to be aware that I'm constantly breathing this air, right? right? And this air is, is fucking all the way polluted by so many different things. And what is the practice of detoxing it constantly? Right. And then locating myself beyond the veil. Right. right. And that has been helpful for me in like waking up every day and knowing what I'm here to do. Yeah. Now let's see if I, I'm having like 800 thoughts right now. Let's see if I can coalesce <laughs> them into something coherent. So we were talking about before we started recording sort of this, the expectations that some people have in social justice spaces for things to be done the right way for everybody mm -hmm. to be included. Right. And so I'm thinking about the perfectionism that comes with that. Right. And you talk about perfectionism in your book and I am right there with you. 100 percent perfectionist in recovery. And that's almost like what's is it a James Baldwin quote, like using the master's tools to dismantle the master's house. Audrey Lord. Audrey Lord. Thank you. Right. Like if we in the social justice world are expecting perfection of ourselves and everyone else around us to be doing it right all of the time. That's just more of the same. And if we're not examining that, that's what it is that's showing up right now when we're criticizing, you know, whoever is using the wrong term or whatever it is that keeps us from our goals. Yeah, I want to say what you're naming actually feels like a very simple practice that we can do every day. Mm. Like that question of how am I replicating really harmful systems? Yeah. That inquiry. And then the next part, which is like, what does it look like for me to do something different? I actually think like that practice, if we did that every day, would be really, really helpful, right? And just helping us like chip away at the conditioning and the shaping and the contortionism, right, that we've inherited. Mm. And yeah, like this idea that there's one right way comes from such a just toxic myth of the binary, right? right? Like that there is one right way. And I feel like some of what makes this work really challenging and complex is like to actually hold that it's a spectrum yeah. and there are many, many ways. And also that like we're all really like different, complicated, like we're not all, mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're not all the same. Right. And so not everybody agrees in social justice about the one right way. Right. Even if you share an identity, like no one is a monolith. Right. And so to me, that's where relationship is really powerful and listening and curiosity, because I think as we are pursuing, Reverend Angel calls it the righteous way. Mm. <laughs> Right. Which isn't like the dominant. It's not like one way, but it's like, what is the way that does the least amount of harm? Right. right and, and helps right. move us forward. Can I stop you right there? Because the question yeah. that comes up for me, this is what I feel like I see happening sometimes in spaces is do the least amount of harm. That means someone still might be harmed. Yeah. And it's not OK, but it is. Well, it's inevitable. It's inevitable. Right? Like, yes, I think that's what it, I mean. It's yes. inevitable, right? Because right. we're humans being human yes. and we're going to impact each other right? from all locations. Right. And, and the difference, 
I think that the, the nuance that we really need to hold is that depending on our social location and our proximity to systems and structures and power, right, you know, harm can be really, really, really compounded, right, right. and um, accumulative, yes. right, especially when it comes from a body like mine where, like, I got all sorts of systems backing me up all the mm-hmm. time. And so I just want to name the nuance of that, like, because it's like, to me, this is where it gets messy. It's like we all impact each other and we're all human, but it, that, it doesn't stop there. And we're located in different places in proximity to power and privilege and resources and access and enforcement. Right. 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 And so like understanding that is awful helpful because otherwise the like we impact each other and we're all impacted can be a bypass exactly. if it doesn't hold the nuance and the discernment. And some of us have more power, right? right. And right. institutions are going to back some of us. And that's what makes the dichotomy between privilege and oppression so precarious, right? right? Is because privilege isn't just like things that you didn't earn. It it often comes with these systems and these structures that like back you up. And that can be really dangerous. Right, right. And I'm thinking about when harm is caused. So in, in the therapy relationship, we fuck up as therapists all the time. And it's not the fact that we fucked up that it's the problem. It's when repair doesn't happen in a relational way. And when it bypasses or minimizes or, you know, excuses the harm that yeah. was caused. It's so hard to do that in a group. It's really right. hard. Well, and the other thing you're making me think of, and I really appreciate that example because it's making me think of my role as a facilitator, right? I'm often facilitating spaces, right. is that repair is part of it. But also, I think taking responsibility for the power, yes. the unequal power yes. that exists in the room, right? Yes. And exposing that for people. Because, like, when I'm in a facilitator role, even if I'm like, you know, doing like really like participatory, <laughs> distributive facilitation, I'm still in a position of control. Right. And so like if I do something or if something happens in the room, like I have a responsibility for that power. Right. And so like I would imagine I'm not a therapist, but I would imagine that therapists are in a position of power too, exactly. right? And so that's also a responsibility yeah. that comes that's unequal, right? In the relationship that needs to be exposed and dealt with as we navigate repair. Right. And what I found so interesting also being a facilitator in many different spaces and being a therapist and having power and being a boss, having power in that way. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of t- women are socialized to not believe we have power. Oftentimes, yep. therapists, we want to believe that there's this equal thing happening here between you and me. Right. And then, you know, in spaces where we're a white facilitator in a social justice space, it might be like, well, I'm abdicating my power because I'm a white person stepping aside. And again, it's a bypass. So I really think this power piece, I keep talking about it because it's been so influential in my recovery and my reckoning. Yes. What's been even more impactful that I found in this course, like the racial stuff, not that I am perfect and get it, but I I think I've done enough work now that if you say anything to me about being racist, I'll be like, oh yeah, yep, I get it. Own it. It's yes, I am. uh, Ableism and Mm -hmm. I guess like education stuff fits in in the ableism category. That is where Mm -hmm. all of my stuff gets triggered. And that is where I have had a really hard time unwinding how we have a society that works, but doesn't adhere to all of the rules of white supremacy. I'm like, if I have to let go of time being important to me, I'm I'll lose my mind. I can't do it. So I don't know how Mm. I got there from where we started, but. I appreciate that. And I actually think that's really important, right? And when I think back to the the people that 
the people I have learned the most from, Bell Hooks, you know, who actually may have known everything. Mm. <laughs> um, but also the, you know, Barbara Smith and the Combahee River Collective and Angela Davis and Audra Lord and I look back at those texts often and, and their words and their wisdom and what they taught us about intersectionality and about social location, I feel like is is really important and is related to what you're saying, because I don't think it's enough to just talk about white supremacy as if it's in isolation. It's not. Right. It's actually in collusion, right, with capitalism yeah. and individualism and colonization and and patriarchy, right, and and other ideologies, right, ableism. And so I, I just really appreciate and I'm really working for myself on trying to understand those intersections with more skill and discernment because it doesn't make sense to validate one identity and invalidate another or disappear another or devalue another. And that makes it messier, right? This isn't like the oppression Olympics. <laughs> I do feel like we have to be willing to stand in the midst of that and navigate the complexity of who we are, especially when we're together in like a group mm -hmm. and we're, we're moving and, and working across lines of difference. And I think it also speaks to conflict, right? Because what it's taught me is that, you know, when holding space for group or, or in relationship with others, that often our needs are different and often our needs are in conflict. Yes. Thank you. And so it's Thank like, you. what then, right? right? Yes. What, how do we show up in those yes. moments and acknowledge that yes. and navigate that together? And maybe the best we can do is just name and acknowledge yeah. that there are many needs in the room and that, that and sometimes they're in conflict or that maybe we can't meet all the needs. Yes. But yes. that feels more skillful than assuming we're meeting everyone's needs and creating so-called safe yes. spaces, which I fucking hate that yes. term. And instead actually acknowledging what to me is a more likely representation of the human experience given where we are today, you know. Okay. Self, remember to listen to that part over and over again every time you facilitate <laughs> any discussions because me too. Yeah, that yeah, that's it. And I guess the other thing that's coming up for me too is the depth of self-knowledge and ability to see our own truth of our our complexities, right? Hold mm -hmm. our badness, right? The things that we do that have caused mm -hmm. harm before. That's a level of work that not a lot of people get to. And so Oof. when we're in these spaces, right, like we're not only holding space for all of these differences of ability and gender and right, all of that stuff, but it's the inner work and we don't all have yes. access to that work, which is again, back to what the book is about, right? We don't yeah. have access to it. We might not have the safety for it, right? There's so many yeah. complexities there. I really appreciate that you said that because I think one of the really horrific and toxic things that wellness sells us is personal solutions to systemic yep. problems. And this idea that, this That's idea that you can just, yeah. <laughs> it's like, let me out. <laughs> it's all good. Um, and this idea that you can just like change your mind, like just change your mind and change your attitude and positive vibes yeah. only. And you know what? If if you're not achieving your goals, it's your fault. Yeah. You're something you're doing is in the you way, right? You manifested it. Yeah. <laughs> you, could, you and I could do that probably for like an yeah. hour, which completely ignores the many systemic and oppressive and unequal and unjust conditions um, that hold people back from them, their whole selves, that, that right. hold people back from surviving, quite frankly. And so, and I also want to say that like some of the most radically self-aware people I, I know 
are also people who have struggled with really unequal and unjust conditions. And mm. so, right, I don't want to create a myth that like only right. people with privilege and and all these great conditions have radical self-awareness. I think that's yep. also absurd. Yep. And actually some of the most fucked up assholes I know are some of yeah. the wealthiest, most abled, you know, mm-hmm. people with access and privilege. And so yep. having said that, I think when we think about what's in the way, to your point of like our knowing ourselves and of our, our doing what's what's needed internally to like remove the obstacles, right, that are in the way of courage and conviction right. and purpose and being in the world and relationship. <laughs> We're not going to edit it out. Uh, it's totally fine. We're very real here. <laughs> y- y'all meet Spot. My, yep. my, it's not even actually my dog. It's my roommate's dog yeah. who's making a cameo on this podcast today. Well, um, it's all good. But there it yep. is. Yeah. The, the, those are the conditions I'm in, y'all, right, right. now. Um <laughs> But I, I think it's really important for us, right, to examine that those are not just inner barriers, that they're external barriers and they're, they're many and they're compounded and they're reinforced and they're sponsored and they're fucking on purpose. Yeah. And so, right, I just feel like, especially in wellness, where there's like a goalpost of like, be well and right. be enlightened and blah, 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 right? Like we have to actually understand that the obstacles are not just individual. They're very, very much systemic. And therefore, our wellness practice actually needs to point to that. Well, and the human experience is the point, right? There is no arriving. And I keep that part reminding myself, like when I'm in the struggle, like this is the point. And I'm like, fuck you, I don't want that to be the point. I want to get to enlightenment where everything is fine. (laughs) This is not good enough, damn it. You know, yeah. But being human is so hard. Yeah, and I think that's that's an amazing inquiry um, and it's like a question that opens up so much possibility is if we challenge what wellness has taught us that well is or what dominant culture has taught us that successful is, right? right? Then that opens up a whole world of possibility, you know? And I really, you know, tackled that question in this book, like, what does it mean to be well? Right. And where I arrived, to, you know, arrived literally was <laughs> yeah. like, I don't know. It's actually up to each and every person to be self-determined yeah. about like what wellness looks like for them. And and they get to be in choice about that. And therefore, we need to create the conditions where people can have agency. Yeah. And choice, you know. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Well, I'd love to ask the, the healer question because I'm so curious your answer. Would you consider yourself a healer? No. <laughs> no. Just no, bye, done. No, no, because I can't heal people. People can only heal themselves. And, uh, you know, and I say that especially as like a white Western woman in wellness, right? Where Mm -hmm. you've got lots of people running around claiming healership and telling people what to do with their lives, Mm -hmm. which to me sometimes doubles as another way of controlling other people and controlling bodies. 100%. Right? So like, no, (laughs) I'm struggling enough just to like heal myself, <laughs> you know, like how can I be a healer of other people? And, and one of the things I've learned from my friend Vivette Jeffries, it's like an amazing, amazing, amazing human and facilitator and space holder is that, you know, only like only you can heal yourself. Right. And so our job as maybe people in healing or people who are supporting healing or, you know, I don't know how to frame it is that we fight for the conditions where people have what they need so they can heal on their terms, themselves, you know, and to me, mm-hmm. that's sort of the, the embodiment and the stance that I want to be a commitment to, right, as we 
explore healing for ourselves and for each other and for the planet. You know, we have Mm -hmm. to listen and we have to know our place in that. Yeah, it's such an interesting because I I kind of am in the camp where everyone's a healer, right? So, Mm -hmm. of course, I'm a healer because everyone's a healer. Yes, I love that. The thing that I keep stumbling on when I have conversations about this, because I do believe that if we stripped away all of the trauma, all of the conditioning, all of the shit that we've experienced, we do have what we need inside of us and that we all have access to the answer. And yet we have all the conditioning, we have all the trauma, we have all the ways that we've been gaslit and then we gaslight ourselves. And I've seen enough clients who are in spaces where they really do need somebody to help mirror the truth to them. And that gets really complex when we're talking about social justice too, because if I have someone in front of me who has a a variety of marginalizations that get in the way for them and they're not seeing themselves clearly, that's a really tough spot to be in as a therapist. And we talk about this. What's my role? Right. We talk about this as a practice, right? Like, It's very easy if it's someone who's just coming in and they like need validation and they're seeing it all clearly. And you're like, yes, but when it's when there's something missing and we have to get to a deeper level, that is hard shit. And it's that's. I want to be a person who can facilitate the healing of others, regardless of what they've been through, but I can't. Yeah. I I mean, first of all, I think it's really healthy and skillful of you to be like really clear about your limitations, right? Like I'm in this body. I have limitations. I don't know if I can support you in what you're asking for. And you're just making me think of two things. One is like, I'm just thinking of uh, consent, right? Mm -hmm. And how, how that feels really important in an interaction, especially when we're working across lines of difference, whether it's in like therapy or coaching or just like partnership or, you know. Yeah you know, if folks are asking for help or if you see an opportunity to like reflect something back to people, like ask if they want it. Like, hey, do you want a reflection? Or hey, can I ask you a question? You know what I mean? Because sometimes I think we assume they do. And you know what I mean? Like that's such a big part of white saviorism. Even if you're in a therapy situation, you still need to ask for consent for that because you have consent to do quote unquote treatment, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're ready for each particular reflection. And therapists can forget that. I love that so much. That feels so skilled. And I also feel like, feel like I can learn a lot from you in this because I'm not a therapist, but like often I think some of the most powerful reflections are just questions. And it sort of yes. speaks to what you just said. It's like everyone is their own healer. And so it's like, yeah. how can we ask questions of possibility? How can we ask questions that encourage people to think differently or to take on a different perspective? And it's not answers and it's not even mirroring as much as it's like, yeah. what you know, anyway, curiosity, you know? Right. Yep. Yeah. Curiosity and relationship again. And I guess that's also part of the struggle when someone's wounding prevents them from allowing relationship. Yeah. And that's, oof, that makes me really sad. I'm sad that I said that out loud. But yeah, yeah, that's a big, oof, that's a big piece. It's hard. You know, I'm really struggling with this in my life right now. It's really hard to bear witness to another person's suffering. Yeah. Yeah. And to also have the clear seeing to see into their wounds, right, and to their hurt, and maybe even to understand it, right? Sometimes, yeah. like we see, we can see someone really clearly, and we're like, "Oof, I see what's happening there." And right, and my condition tendency when people are like that is like, "I want to help you. I want to fix you. I want to get you know, I want to coach you. I want to give you what you need. I want like all this fucked up, really unhelpful stuff." And I'm yeah. learning this really 
uncomfortable practice of just witnessing. Yeah. And I want to say I'm real bad at it. <laughs> I am like, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm like, so I'm like the mm-hmm. impulse for me, the embodied probably trauma response and conditioning, mm-hmm. the conditioned res- response to like help or to validate even like just yeah. all of that stuff where I'm just like getting my hands in someone else's shit. Like I'm really trying to learn the power of just like holding space for someone else to have their own experience and giving them the dignity of, of like, you know what I mean? Like, like allowing them yes. to have the dignity of their own experience without my, without my intervention. Right. Yep. That's some 12 step wisdom right there. I that's don't know right. if that's, that's where like, you got it from, but that's, that's where I got like, it from. That's exactly where I got it from. Yeah. And, and I have a lot of people in my life who have taught me a lot um, about mm-hmm. that. And, and I'm, and I just want to say like, I'm learning that work in this moment and it's, and it's a very subtle muscle because I, I learned a therapy modality where I thought I was pretty good at distancing myself from the client's shit. But once I started learning this modality called NARM, I realized just how much I was it, I was doing that, but on a, on a much more like microscopic level and mostly just internally. Like my external behavior was okay, but it was the internal part mm. that I couldn't tolerate not wanting to help. And so now... Oof, that's its own muscle that I keep trying to like every time I have a session and I feel a client like wanting me to fix and I just go for I'm like, lean back, lean back. (laughs) I want to know what NARM is. Neuroaffective relational model. It is a modality that's all about complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Yes. It's all relational. It's kind of um, the way the way that I describe it that I'm sure they don't like, but it's um psychodynamic so knowing how our history impacts our present buddhism very much like it it helps get this like i guess uh, observer online with the way that we ask a lot of questions and then um buddhism and, and somatic therapy so it's like those three had a baby um oh it's n-a-r-m mm-hmm. yep um you just blew my mind and i'm already googling it oh so. good Great. Well, like, we can talk. I'll tell you. I'll now refer you I would like you to change to. this interview into me interviewing you <laughs> all about this modality. That's what's happening, y'all. Um, that, thank you for that. That's so, so, so helpful. And um, yeah, that fe- I feel like there's so much work there for me, that muscle. Um, and it feels also really relevant to all the other work that we're doing, which is 100%. like, how do we, right? How do we hold space for variation? How do we hold space for, you know what I mean? Deviation yeah. from like so-called, you know, I'm air quoting norm, what we've come to know as norm or normal, right? Mm-hmm. And some of like what I've learned in my interactions with folks around this is that, you know, I'm really fucked up and my conditioned responses are just, are simply considered normal. Right. In dominant right. culture. Right. Even though they're deeply extreme. So like perfectionism, for example, yes. is a really violent way yes. of being in the world, especially to, to you not, and to others. Yeah. Like it's like, yeah, you can't even keep it to yourself. Like, you know, you're hurting yourself. You're hurting other people that you're working with or interacting with. And that feels like a really violent symptom. Yeah. Right. A really harmful symptom of my own wounding and my own socialization that society has deemed not just acceptable, but it rewards me. Yes. For perfectionism. And so so I'm also interrogating like my own really extreme unhealthy coping mechanisms that also fall into like Mm -hmm. that category. But 
that dominant culture has said, that's fine. You're fine. You can do that. You know, right. You know, and even like the ways in which we colonize spaces, you know, when we take over and we take control or we control bodies or we tone police, like dominant culture has said all of those things are acceptable and it's bullshit, right? They're really deeply violent and harmful. And so anyway, so like, I really appreciate that you named that because that's part of my practice is like mm. in real time, like really interrogating how I'm having trauma responses all the time, but oh, my survival time. shaping looks a lot more like what dominant culture says is acceptable and normal. And it's not, it's fucked. Right. Right. Yep. Yeah. Totally with you. Yeah. You'll really dig Narm. Happy to talk to you more about it. <laughs> yes, please. Yeah. Yes, please. Well, I, I want to make sure to respect your time and, and also ask the, the wounded healer question. Do you consider yourself a wounded healer? In the book, I, I think somewhere in the book, you know, it's 95,000 words. So like, and there's you, a I word that in you there know. somewhere. How many words? I love oh, it. my God. The way I know that is because the other day I was telling someone that I was like, there are 95,000 opportunities for me to have made a mistake in this book. Like I was just like, mm -hmm. oh, shit, it's really, it's really scary to like yeah. to write a book and to have it, you know, enshrined. But in the book somewhere, I say something that I am both the wounded and the wounder. So I didn't use the word healing, but I said, I am mm. both the wounded and the wounder. And, mm -hmm. you know, I feel like that relates back to whiteness for me and that, mm. you know, when I first started to unpack whiteness, I, I put so much focus on all of the ways I was like causing harm and hurting other people and all of like the material privilege and benefits and and just like beating myself up on that front. And then I started to interrogate the cost of whiteness on my body and on my spirit yep. and on my soul. And and also like in the relationships with people who love me, right? And and mm -hmm. the, and the, co the cost of whiteness on my life and my community. And that's actually, I feel like when things shifted for me and my yes. own reckoning with whiteness, because it taught me that I have skin in the game yeah. in a way that I didn't feel before, right? It was just like operating from guilt and shame and sort of like, doing this kind of robotic, like, what's the thing I should do and what are people telling me to do? Right. And then I started to like dig really deep into what has whiteness cost me? So anyway, so I just, I share that because I feel like it relates to what you're saying about the wounded and the wounder. Yeah. And I feel like everyone has that to some extent in different ways and, and disproportionately, of course, but like that was a really helpful teaching for me. And now, you know, and I write about this in the book. I write about the cost of whiteness. And I was very uncomfortable when I wrote that that section mm. in the book. Because I was like, people are not going to like this. <laughs> like, right, right. I'm going to get my ass kicked for writing this. But, you know, I was like, you know, whiteness is hurting white people too. Yes. And all evidence is pointing to that, not just with climate change, right? And, and the mm -hmm. relationship between white supremacy and, you know, climate degradation. Um, but like, look at the insurrection, you know, like... Mm -hmm. <laughs> Like people with guns are coming for all of us. Right. And so in the pandemic, and right? So it's like, I think that that question, if you're a white bodied person and you're really focused on other in dismantling whiteness or in your practice of understanding and unpacking whiteness, I think you should turn that on yourself. How is whiteness hurting you? Exactly. That's the buy-in. Because people aren't going to care like globally unless it affects them. And it's never just an individual question, right? Because right. anything that hurts me hurts others, right? And so anyway, so that was game-changing for me and, mm -hmm. and holding what you're naming, which is why I love your podcast and I love the conversation that you're really standing for is like understanding that we are the impacted and the impacted, the wounder and the wounded, you know, um, 
feels like a really healthy and human practice for all of us. And it's, and I think I, I, I imagine it's the thing that's going to help us move towards one another as we confront the many accelerating crises we are facing in our future. You know, if we can start to see one another and be with one another in a different way, that's going to help us not just survive, but thrive together. Are you into astrology at all? Oh, yeah. Hello, Mercury in retrograde right now. Right, I know, right? During my book launch. Right. So see if I can repeat what this guy said. I I saw an astrologer last night and I was like, I'm dying. Like, I can't function in this climate. The Roe v. Wade stuff. I just feel like I'm feeling all of the fear of all the uterus holders in the world. But so what he was telling me last night, since we're in the Pluto return for the U.S., Pluto is in the second house and he was like, this is the house of mine. It's mine. I want to do it my way and I don't care about your way. It's like mine and like value, something like that. And he said, so this is the reckoning, right? This is why the mask thing was such a big deal is that we, you know, we continue to bring this piece up so that we have the opportunity to do something different and to think more collectively because this country was founded on I want what I want and I don't care how that impacts you. And that was mm. that was really meaningful and helpful for me. And he's like, I don't know if we will, you know, get out of this caring more about each other, but this is what's up right now. I love that. And since we're both going really woo-woo. Yeah, go, please. I'll give you, I rarely do this out loud. I'll give you another orientation that, you know, I got hip to many, many years ago. And it's a book called Eastern, oh, no, no. It's a book called Awakening the Global Heart by Anadia Judith, who did Anadia a Anadia Judith, of, Eastern yeah, Body, Western Mind. Oh, yeah. That's right. Great, great, oh, great yeah. book. And I love the the, the chakra system as yeah. a mapping, right? Yes. And, and astrology, too, is like not, not an escape or a bypass, but as a way to like be curious and ask different questions and see ourselves right. in different ways. Anyway, I love that stuff. And um, in this book, what she says is that we're stuck in the third chakra which is like the adolescent, the power hungry, the power over, the me, 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 highly individualistic, you know, chakra. Um, And that that as like as a species, right, in our evolution, like that's sort of where Mm. we're at. And the place we're going is the heart chakra. And that in between the third and the fourth chakra, the the, the kind of solar plexus, the core, the me chakra and the heart chakra, which is like the connection and the relationship and the compassion chakra, is this thing called the rainbow bridge, which is, I'm not going to get this right for all the chakra scholars. I want to apologize <laughs> if, I'm mis- if I'm misinterpreting. Just go by Anna Dea Judas book, but right. here's the summary. By, but it is said that like that journey from me to we, mm. right? Like that is actually the call of our time, right? And I just want to like acknowledge, especially given like, because I'm with you, it's so hot right now and it feels like, these really toxic ideologies, patriarchy, white supremacy, capitalism, you know, individualism, imperialism is like holding on for dear life right yeah. now. Like everything that we're seeing politically in our country is evidence of that. Yep. And the other thing we're seeing, right, is like the work of the heart. And we're seeing people get organized and we're seeing yeah. people find their voice and speak out. And we're seeing mutual aid groups pop up all over the place. And So we're also seeing another thing I feel like emerge that's beautiful and different and unique and evolving. And I just want to hold that, right? That like maybe for the rest of my life, there's going to be this push and pull, right? Right. This like white supremacy trying to pull us backward and 
love <laughs> and community trying to move us forward. And, and I, I think I just want to build a capacity and a courage to stand in the midst of that, like to just stand on that bridge and to learn how to walk it. Beautifully said. Wonderful. So where do people buy the book? How do they follow you? Where do they hear more about you? You're so wonderful. <laughs> I, I love you're you. wonderful, by the way. I also love you. Oh learned, God, I learned so much from you in this podcast. Yeah, we're friends. Aww. So, um, well, you can buy the book anywhere, but I really want to encourage folks to buy the book from their local indie bookstore because um, that feels really important. So, you know, you can go to IndieBound and look up your local store and then just buy directly for them. Or you can walk into your indie bookstore. I love this idea and just be like, Hey, do you have this book? <laughs> mm -hmm. If not, can you order it for me? And yeah, yes, that's right. Can. I love that because get to know like your local bookstore. It feels like an important invitation. And then you can, um, I mean, I do a lot of work with Citizen Well, which is C-T-Z-N-W-E-L-L. -L. I put out a newsletter once a week. I've been doing that for five years. That's um, fire <laughs> and ruffles lots of feathers. Um, mm -hmm. But it's a really helpful for folks who are like, I sort of like what you're saying, like I can't. I can't keep track of all the like messed up things that are happening. Like, yeah. what do I need to know? And then what do I need to do? Like, that's sort of why we made this newsletter called Well Read. It was like, here's what you need to know. Here are the people you should be listening to and following. And here's mm. what you can do this week, right? Excellent. Given what's happening right now. So we tried to make that offering for folks. And I'm just, I don't know, I'm around. Um, <laughs> um, you can, you know, my website is americandetox.co. And, um, you know, I'm here for all of it, y'all. Like, reach out. Uh, tell me how you like the book. Tell me what you need. Tell me what's happening and, and how we can move forward together. I, I'm first and foremost an organizer. I do not consider myself a writer, by the way. I just like <laughs> wrote a thing because it was in my body. Yep. And I felt like I had to honor that. And I do lots of things, but I, I really believe first and foremost, I'm an organizer. I love to bring people together and I love to organize folks towards a shared goal and a shared future that we all deserve. And so if you're like, I want to be an organizer or I want to organize or I want to get with you, like I'm here for it. Amazing. Well, I think this book is really important. Even only reading half of it so far, it's really important. It's really accessible. Cool. And I hope everybody reads it. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And I'm excited to see what people think. And I'm, I'm really excited for the conversation that it inspires. Exactly. Um, so, so let's keep talking. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. This it, it really was medicine that I needed today. So I'm really, Me really too. glad this happened today. Me too. Thank you so much. Told you that was juicy, right? <laughs> to learn more about Carrie Kelly, you can visit our website at www.headhearttherapy.com slash podcast. And as always, thanks to Andrea Clunder and the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for the album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. Until next time, bye-bye.